With the explosion of research information that medical oncologists must consume daily, we can quickly lose track of what's going on in other specialties, and I met with Dr. Roberts to learn more about new developments in hepatology. It's an interesting disease in terms of its basic epidemiology. It has a larger impact around the world than in general we see in the United States and in North America. And so I think it tends to have some of a diminished influence of diminished attention to it here compared to the attention it gets in other parts of the world. It's the fifth or sixth most common cancer worldwide and affects probably around 600,000, 625,000 people a year. It's a difficult cancer to diagnose and treat, and that is perhaps even more of a problem in other parts of the world because it's commonest in parts of the world that don't have as developed a medical infrastructure. So of the 625 or so thousand incident cases a year, there are about 600,000 deaths a year. So that makes it actually the third most common cause of cancer death and sort of reflects the fact that most people around the world are diagnosed at a late stage and do not have very long survival. I was kind of surprised, you know, with a sharp presentation by Dr. Lovett that according to that algorithm he had up there, like almost a third of patients were presenting with early stage disease for resection, et cetera. Was that more in the westernized world? It's primarily in centers that have, in a sense, a footprint and a reputation for treatment of liver cancer. So that so wasn't you, really reflecting end, what happens Yeah, so you end up with a biased view because if a doctor, so for example, he may have been reflecting the experience in Barcelona right, or right. I see. in Mount Sinai where he also works, or perhaps in Mayor Rochester, where when physicians see a patient that they think is one that's amenable to the potentially curative therapies, then they'll send patients to a tertiary center like that. But do you think that those numbers apply to, let's say, the U.S. cases that almost a third have resection? No, I think the most recent data comes from around 2002-2003 from Dr. Al Sarag in Houston. And I think his numbers are probably around 12 to 15 percent of patients that are presenting to U.S. centers are candidates for a potentially curative treatment like liver transplantation or surgical resection. Now, that's a significant improvement over previous studies because Dr. Elsarag has looked at the SEER database starting in the early 70s. I think his earliest data that he looked at was around the 74 to 76 time frame. And in that time frame, it was less than 1% of patients that were presenting to physicians. And actually, I think one of those studies was a VA study. Well, there was less than 1% of people that were presenting with HTC were presenting at a stage where these curative therapies could be applied. Now, even as late as the mid-90s, the data held true that it was less than 1% of patients. And I think in a sense, it is a credit to efforts by people like Dr. Elsarag, who published in the late 90s then one of the first papers that really made the point that the incidence of hepatocellular carcinoma in this country was high in certain particular demographic groups and was increasing even in the majority Caucasian white population that I think more and more the 
general medical and the hepatology community began to pay attention to this disease and to the need for screening of at-risk individuals. But this sort of 12% figure, do you think that applies in the SEER database US-wide? I personally suspect that it may be less. I think he actually got it from the, well, I'm not sure where he got those numbers. But even 12% is not that that high. Well, that's the thing. It's not that high, and I think our goal should be to improve those numbers. If that's possible. Is it possible? I believe it is. I think that we still see in many centers patients who have risk factors for liver cancer who are not under a surveillance program of regular screening. Which should consist of what? The latest guidelines from the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease, which published a guideline by Jody Bruch and Maurice Sherman in November 2005 to use ultrasound screening of the liver every six months. Now, for many, many years, we've been proposing that people use a combination of ultrasound and alpha-fetoprotein. The reason that the specific reason they dropped the alpha-fetoprotein is that it is not as sensitive for early-stage cancers. So when you divide liver cancers out into early-stage versus later-stage cancers, the alpha-fetoprotein only has a sensitivity of about 20% for early-stage cancers. And what kinds of patients should be in this type of surveillance program? Well, anyone with cirrhosis generally. There's a few categories of patients with cirrhosis for whom we don't have enough data to make a definitive recommendation. But otherwise, everyone with cirrhosis, I think it's reasonable to make that general statement, is at some risk, many of them at significantly high risk and should have screening every six months. Now, the other group of patients that is of particular importance is patients with chronic hepatitis B virus infection because around the world there's 350, 400 million people that have chronic infection with hepatitis B. Even in the absence of cirrhosis, those individuals are still at risk of developing HCC. And so those populations, generally recommendations that if people are born in Asia where the transmission of hepatitis B is typically vertical from maternal fetal transmission or HBV is acquired in early age, those individuals, if they are males, should be screened starting at age 40, and if they are females, should be screened starting at age 50. And then if they are individuals born in Africa, those individuals appear to have an even higher risk. And so the recommendation is to begin to screen individuals with chronic hepatitis B, even in the absence of cirrhosis, who are born in Africa beginning at the age of 20. The other high-risk groups without cirrhosis, individuals with chronic hepatitis B with a family history of liver cancer, and individuals with hepatitis B who have evidence of active inflammation or who have particularly high hepatitis B viral titers, all of those groups have been shown to be at increased risk. How about hepatitis C? Hepatitis C appears to be more a disease that causes HCC secondary to cirrhosis. So patients with chronic hepatitis C virus infection who do not have cirrhosis do not need to be in a screening program. I was very surprised. I saw a statistic somewhere saying that the most common cause of death in patients with cirrhosis is HCC. Is that right? That's increasingly so, and I think that it reflects a shift in the demographics of HCC and 
reflects also the advances in management of chronic liver disease. In that, what it reflects is that we can now, in a sense, manage people with cirrhosis to the degree that they don't die of their chronic liver disease and they live long enough that they are at risk, at high risk of developing HCC. You mentioned the male predominance of this disease. What's the hypothesis about why that happens? I think most people think there must be something hormonal that must be related to differences in hormone action that are related to growth of liver cells or proliferation of liver cells. I think one of the plausible hypotheses is that it relates to androgen receptor function. I think I'll leave it at that. It's have endocrine interventions like antiandrogens or other, you know, therapies been utilized in HCC? An anti-estrogen, tamoxifen, estrogen is also proliferative for liver cells, and so that's demonstrated by the association of hepatic adenomas, for example, with oral contraceptive use. And so tamoxifen has been used in a number of studies in an attempt to treat HCC, and several randomized studies were performed that showed that it did not have a survival advantage. Do the cells have estrogen or androgen receptors? They have receptors for both. Both? Yes. And androgens also are proliferative for the liver. And we see that, again, most commonly in people who use androgens, for example, bodybuilders who use androgens, have a higher risk of development of hepatic adenomas as well. What about antiandrogen therapy or LHRH agonists? Have they been looked at? I don't believe anyone has looked at those. Could you sort of provide a somewhat little bit of an update, you know, like a hepatology 101 to people who were oncologists who were more focused on other things in terms of some of the developments of management of patients with chronic liver disease, such as hepatitis C, hepatitis B, and cirrhosis? Mm-hmm. What's new? I think I'll start out with hepatitis C in that I think we've seen the most progress with that disease in the last 10 years or so. I think that 10 years ago, if you saw a patient with hepatitis C, it was really, there was a real dilemma and choice about whether it was worthwhile to undergo the treatment that was available at that time. At that time, standard treatment was with interferon alone. And cure rates or sustained remission rates were of the order of perhaps 15%. And so, you know, patients would be undergoing treatment for a year with interferon, significant side effects, with only about a 10-15% likelihood of cure. With advances in therapy, particularly the pegulation of interferon so that it can be given now fewer times a week by injection, by subcutaneous injection, and then also the addition of ribavirin. We've seen, and I think a better understanding of the ability to individualize therapy for patients. So we know now, for example, that if patients have genotypes 2 or 3 of the hepatitis C virus, their cure rates after treatment with pegylated interferon and ribavirin are of the order of 80 to 90%. Now, unfortunately, the genotypes that are most prevalent in the United States, genotype 1, the cure rate is probably more like 50% after treatment for a year. But that's still a substantial improvement over what things were like 10 years ago. What's the epidemiology of hepatitis C infection in the United States? The evidence suggests that hepatitis C was introduced in a widespread manner 
into the United States population in the 60s and 70s, and that it then spread through high-risk behaviors, through the blood supply, contamination of the blood supply, because there was no test for hepatitis C, sort of more broadly into the general population, through to about 1990, when the virus was identified and the tests became available for hepatitis C virus. Before then, epidemiologists had identified a non-A, non-B hepatitis. That was characterized by repeated swings up and down of the ALT and, and other liver function tests, and it clearly was different from either hepatitis A or hepatitis B in its epidemiology. But the virus wasn't identified in sequence until 1990, and then the tests became available for it. And the consequence of that is that once we began to be able to test the blood supply, test individuals, the incidence of new cases of hepatitis C began to drop. And so we really are seeing a significant decline in incidence of hepatitis C in the United States. When new cases do occur, what's the method of transmission? Common methods of transmission are injection drug use, the use of shared needles, intranasal cocaine use, because again, the nasal mucous membranes are broken, and if there's shared or contaminated cocaine, then that becomes a method of transmission. There's probably some small rate of transmission from, for example, tattoos as well. What about sexual transmission? Sexual transmission of hepatitis C virus is important for high-risk groups, people with multiple sexual partners. It is an interesting thing that for people in stable monogamous relationships, the rate of transmission is only about 0.5% per year. So in general, it's important to inform patients who are infected about this small but real risk, but the CDC does not have a formal recommendation that they use protective measures during sexual intercourse when they're in a monogamous relationship. How about hepatitis B? Hepatitis B is different in that it has a significantly higher rate of transmission, both when there's blood exposure and when the sexual exposure risks are substantially higher. The huge advantage we have with hepatitis B, of course, is that there's a vaccine available. And so right now, all newborns in the United States are immunized, and those teenagers who have not previously been immunized are immunized at the high school age. And so transmission of hepatitis B in this population, in the general U.S. population, is very low. Now, we have a substantial number of immigrants to the United States from areas where hepatitis B transmission is high, and these are typically individuals from Asia or sub-Saharan Africa, and where the general seroprevalences in the populations in those countries are of the order of 10 to 20 percent of individuals have chronic hepatitis B virus infection. So those populations moving into the United States represent a significant reservoir of chronically infected individuals, and it's important for us to identify those individuals and institute screening in a surveillance program for those individuals that are at risk. What do we know about the pathophysiology of HCC coming out of these different epidemiologic backgrounds? Are the tumors different biologically? I think the key, it appears as though cirrhosis is an important risk factor in that individuals that develop cirrhosis, whether it's from B or C, I think the way I think of it is that cirrhosis really reflects a premature aging of the liver. Yeah, can you talk more about what we understand about what cirrhosis actually is? Mm -hmm. 
I think it's best characterized as that of a aging. premature aging of the liver, hmm. in that the liver has this incredible capacity to regenerate itself. And so if, for example, you have hepatitis with chronic inflammation, you end up with cycles of inflammation causing cell death, and then the liver regenerating itself. But with chronic hepatitis, you have these accelerated cycles. And so eventually the liver gets to the point where it is incapable of regenerating itself in a normal fashion. In addition, the inflammation causes the production of or is associated with the production of cytokines that act on the stromal cells of the liver and expand the stromal cells. They recruit inflammatory cells to the liver. And within this context, we end up with increased proliferation of fibroblast stellate cells that deposit collagen within the liver. And a disordered architecture of the liver, in a sense, it becomes no longer able to regenerate itself in a normal fashion. And you talked about this as premature aging. So what is hepatic function as people get older, 80s, 90s? What do you see? Do you see anything like this? Typically not. And so it's an interesting thing because clearly the liver is programmed so that if it does not have a chronic insult that substantially accelerates its normal process of death and repair within the liver, we are built with a liver that would last generally longer than humans will live. So then why would you call it premature aging? Well, because what appears to be the case is if you look, for example, at the telomeres, at the length of the telomeres of chromosomes in the liver. Now, what happens with each cycle of death and regeneration of, let's say, you know, you have a stem cell that differentiates into a differentiated hepatocyte, and then you have these cycles that it goes through. Now, the lifespan of the average hepatocyte must be such that Let's say the average hepatocyte had the capability of 50 divisions over the course of the lifetime of that clone. That 50 divisions must be longer than the average lifespan of a human. So that with each division, you'd lose a little bit of the telomeres at the tips of the chromosomes. But over the course of a lifespan, you never get to the point where the telomeres have, in a sense, been worn down and completely lost. Because what happens when telomeres are completely lost, the ends of chromosomes become sticky, and they're more prone to stick to other chromosomes. And you begin to have, you end up with genomic instability because you get breaks and rearrangements of the chromosomes. And that's one of the features of carcinogenesis really generally is the genomic instability that occurs. So telomeres are the six nucleotide repeats on the ends of chromosomes. There's several thousand of them on the end of the average chromosome, and that's what protects chromosomes from, in a sense, interacting with each other and protects the genome from instability. With that background in terms of cirrhosis, how does that lead to HCC? So one of the things that happens, so by the time you end up with a cirrhotic liver, and this has been studied, you have a gradual dwindling of the length of the telomeres so that you end up with chromosomes that are sticky, so to speak. Now, the hepatocyte, or the most cells, naturally sense it when they reach the point where their genome is unstable. And they have an inherent capability when they reach that point to undergo apoptosis. 
And so we have a process that is called, has been termed, telomeric crisis. When the whole population of cells reaches that point, that population of cells tends to die off through apoptosis. Now, some cells develop mechanisms to escape telomeric crisis and become immortalized. And often that happens because they activate the enzyme that usually is turned off early in life called telomerase, which enables cells to regenerate their telomeres. So if cells reactivate their telomerase, they tend to become immortal. So now they have these features of genomic instability, but they're immortal. And within that context, in a milieu of inflammation where there's genotoxic events or there's a genotoxic environment from inflammatory mediators, cells are more prone to acquire the mutations and chromosomal rearrangements that form the basis of changing into a malignant phenotype. What about hepatitis B? How does that work? So hepatitis B works the same way as C through the cirrhotic pathway in those individuals that develop cirrhosis. The additional event that occurs in hepatitis B that does not occur in hepatitis C is that hepatitis B is a DNA virus. And consequently, it is capable of integrating into the host genome. So hepatitis B infects the liver cell and it integrates in most people who have chronic hepatitis B infection, you can identify integrated hepatitis B in the DNA of the host hepatocyte. And the thought is that over time, there are clones that, for a variety of reasons, hepatitis B, for example, has a very powerful X gene that acts as a transcription factor that is oncogenic. So X-gene effects on other genes within the host genome can potentially activate genes that are proliferative or oncogenic. There are also portions of the hepatitis B virus DNA that by themselves are enhancer sequence that enhance gene transcription. So if hepatitis B were to insert next to a gene that has the capability of driving cell proliferation, then hepatitis B in that context can increase the growth rate of that particular cell or group of cells. And eventually, over time, you can then have a clone of cells that proliferates and becomes autonomous and then acquires additional mutations or genetic changes that cause it to become malignant. Now, how often do you see HCC in the setting of an otherwise normal liver? No hepatitis, no cirrhosis, just an HCC. That occurs probably in the United States in between 10 and 50% of patients that are seen depending on the center. And it's an interesting thing because in those countries where the vast majority of cases are, for example, cases that are individuals with hepatitis B or hepatitis C infection, that number tends to be very low. I think that in Japan or in China or in West Africa, the number of cases you would see of individuals with, in a sense, no known risk factors would be probably less than 5%. But for example, in the upper Midwest where I work, we probably see at least 20 to 30% of the individuals we see with hepatella carcinoma have no known risk factors. And what do you think is going on there? We don't know. Some of them, we presume, may have exposure to perhaps toxins, agents that are hepatotoxic. It's not clear exactly what agents, the hepatotoxic agent that is 
best studied is aflatoxin, which of course is much more prevalent in again, areas of Asia and Africa. Here in the United States, we don't have as clear an idea of what those potential risk factors might be. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the child's pew system of grading. Could you kind of explain what that system looks at and how it's actually utilized clinically? Mm -hmm. So the child's pew system is divided into child's A, B, and C classes. And basically, is an attempt to grade the degree of liver dysfunction. And you use this system on all people with liver disease, or is it more in the HCC setting? We use it in all people with liver disease. Over the past several years, there's really been a shift in assessment of liver disease from the child pew system to the MELD system, and this may be something of interest to discuss. How do you and spell it? MELD? The M-E-L-D. So okay. it's the model for end-stage liver disease that was developed by Drs. Patrick Kamath and Ray Kim and their colleagues at the Mayo Clinic. I think the main distinction between the two scoring systems is that the minimal score you can have with the child pew system is a 5, and the maximum score you can have is 15. So the grading scale really is a scale of, it's an 11-point scale from 5 to 15. And then depending on, I think 5 to 7 is a child's A, I think it's 7 to 12 is a child's B, and then above 12 is a, maybe 7 to 10, and then above that is a child's C. What the MELD system does is increase that scale, and then I think the smallest melds you can have is 6, and I think the largest you can have is 40. So it basically gives you a finer gradation. Same five factors? No. The meld uses the prothrombin time, bilirubin, and creatinine. And so there's two potential advantages of the meld. One advantage is the fact that it broadens out the scale and allows you to make finer distinctions in terms of liver decompensation. The other advantage is that the components of the melt are easily measured and they're much more objectively measured. In the old child pew system, it was really sometimes difficult to compare different people's assessments of ascites, for example, or of encephalopathy. So those were grayer areas. And of course, at a time when the qualification criteria for liver transplantation were based on the child pew classification, you know, then it was difficult to compare sometimes the grading or staging of individuals across different centers. Whereas if you now have fairly objectively measured laboratory tests, it's a lot easier to do those comparisons. I was trying to understand it within the context of, you know, what was reported with the SHARP trial, which was almost all child's A. Uh-huh. And I was trying to understand what the implications are, for example, of considering treatment with, say, child's B. Is that more an issue of that toxicity of therapy might be greater or that the comorbidity from liver disease is more likely to kill a patient from HCC? From a clinical mm-hmm. point of view, I wasn't sure exactly what it means. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That I think it's both issues in that patients who have child C cirrhosis, for example, have substantially less hepatic function. The ability of the liver to detoxify drugs and chemicals is substantially reduced. So they 
will have a significantly lower tolerance, particularly for the types of standard chemotherapeutic agents that are used. It's not as clear how much of an effect liver dysfunction has on people's tolerance of the newer targeted agents. What about in terms of prognosis? I mean, HCC is a lethal disease. You would think that's the main issue. But when you get to a child's B or C, what are you looking at in terms of survival? I think that's your other point in terms of the underlying liver disease. And really, one of the key differences of HCC from other cancers is that it's really, for most people with HCC, they have two major diseases. They have the cancer, and then they have the underlying liver disease, both of which have substantial effects on their mortality. And even within a group of individuals with child C cirrhosis, there's variations in terms of their risk of death, depending on the particular expressions of their cirrhosis. So there's patients who have bottle hypertension, who have more esophageal varices, for example, as an expression, whereas on the other hand, there may be others who have more ascites. But in general, patients with child C cirrhosis probably have a median survival of the order of perhaps two years. And so that by itself places them in a group that's at high risk for death. Let's talk a little bit about some of the local strategies to treat HCC from surgical resection, transplant, chemoembolization. Can you kind of sort of go through all those different strategies and how they're utilized? Mm-hmm. So one of the major developments in the treatment of HCC over the past several years has been the identification of the fact that if HCC is found at an early stage, and most centers in most countries use the Milan criteria, that is the identification of a single nodule within the liver that is no more than five centimeters in size, or up to three nodules with the largest no greater than three centimeters in size, these features appear to be surrogates for liver cancers that do not have spread that is clinically significant outside the liver. So patients that meet these criteria who undergo a liver transplant typically have a rate of recurrence that is less than 10 to 15%. And being able to identify this character of liver cancers has meant that If we can identify patients who are at risk at an early enough stage and enroll them in liver transplant programs, many of them will undergo some kind of local therapy before their liver transplant while they're on the waiting list. But these patients then have a five-year survival of probably between 70 to 80% in most centers, which is remarkable for a solid tumor. What's the current weight right now for liver transplant in general and with these patients specifically? The general weight for liver transplant is probably 6 to 12 months. It depends a lot on where you are in the country. The areas where the weight is only as short as 2 months, and there's areas where the weight is as much as 18 months. What the United Network for Organ Sharing, or UNUS, has done is assign patients with hepatocellular carcinoma, because many of them develop hepatocellular carcinoma when they are still at a child's A class, they're assigned additional meld points that are concomitant. And the goal of UNOS in this process is to assign enough meld points to, in a sense, be fair, both to patients with HCC and to those who are going to receive liver transplants for non-cancer indications. And so the meld points are adjusted 
so that about the same percentage of patients will either drop off the waiting list in the case of hepatitis carcinoma because of progression of their liver cancer or drop off the waiting list because of really deaths while waiting. And right now in the United States, that percentage is around 15%. But in terms of the HCC patients, are the weights about what you just described? Yeah, so they are adjusted so that the weights are about the same. And how often do you have to utilize some type of temporizing local therapy to control the tumor before the transplant? That tends to be very center-dependent. In a center that does not have a long wait time, so if they had a wait time of less than three months, because of the low likelihood of progression while waiting, many of those centers could elect not to perform any kind of local therapy. But a center that has more than a six-month wait time almost certainly has to use some kind of local treatment to prevent too many of their patients dropping off of the waiting list because of progression. What about systemic therapy? Systemic therapies have not been used up to this point in the wait up to liver transplantation. I think it's a question now that we have a therapy that we know to be effective in prolonging survival. We really haven't answered the question whether it would be effective also in the pre-transplant setting. I guess, too, we don't know about the safety. If you have serafinib on board and you're doing a liver transplant, any speculations? I think the main questions with serafinib have been that it has a small, but it has an increased risk of a couple of things that are important in the transplant setting. One of them is bleeding risk. Now, you could make the argument that perhaps coming off of serafinib just a few days, a few weeks before a transplant would be sufficient to reduce that risk of bleeding with the transplant. I mean, yeah. do you know in advance? You have two, three weeks that you know that they're not, you know, or is it? We less? often we often know when people are coming up close to the top of the list I in see. the particular center. Right. So often centers, for example, will often have patients move within an estimate of about maybe a month's time of when the center estimates that the patient is going to have a liver available. They might, for example, have them move closer. And so it is possible to have some kind of an estimate of when a patient's going to receive their transplant. What kind of local interventions might be done in that situation? I think the commonest interventions are chemoembolization. And when we have administration of a combination of a chemotherapy agent or agents mixed with typically foam gel foam beads infused into the arterial supply to the tumor, and the other commonly used modality is radiofrequency ablation. Can you talk more about chemoembolization and sort of how it works and what the variables are and mm-hmm. how people use it? Mm-hmm. So chemoembolization is administered by going in typically through the femoral artery up the aorta and then identifying the hepatic artery. And particularly, it can be used quite selectively in that interventional radiologists can often identify the particular branch of the hepatic artery that supplies a tumor nodule. And then they'll infuse into the tumor nodule typically a mixture of gel foam beads. It's typically of a range of, I think, about 100 to 150 microns in size. And a chemotherapy agent or agents In our institutions, we use adriamycin and mitomycin C. Other institutions use cisplatin. That has not been well studied. The differential effects of different agents used in the chemoembolization setting and different 
centers use different agents, and there haven't been comparative studies done. How long is the chemo actually infused? It's done fairly rapidly in that the idea is to, with the presence of the foam beads, with the addition of the foam beads, the idea is to occlude the vasculature that's applying the tumor and, in a sense, trap the chemotherapy drug within the tumor. Do we know that the chemo adds anything? There's strong evidence that the chemo does add to the treatment because the Barcelona group, in particular, did a study a number of years ago where they randomized patients to no treatment, chemoembolization, or hepatic artery embolization, bland embolization. And what they found was this trial was closed early when the chemoembolization arm crossed the point where it was clear that chemoembolization was of benefit. And that occurred before the hepatic artery embolization arm crossed the point of benefit. So we don't know if you compared hepatic artery embolization alone with no treatment, whether you would see a substantial difference, but clearly chemoembolization was better than hepatic artery embolization. I think the one issue to mention that we began talking about was really that the other potential concern is that many of the drugs that are used after liver transplantation cause hypertension and or renal insufficiency. These are the immunosuppressants that are used to prevent rejection of the new liver. And so to the degree that sorafenib also may have nephrotoxic or effects on hypertension, that's another potential drug interaction that we may need to pay attention to in patients that are going to receive a liver transplant. Now, of course, you could make the point that patients who meet Milan criteria who are not at high risk of recurrence after liver transplantation really do very well without any kind of, you know, adjuvant treatment after transplantation. So this may not be an issue. It may be possible to just drop serafinib or other agents of its class once a transplant is performed. Do you think that it's reasonable to consider using serafinib at this point after transplant or after resection as adjuvant therapy in a non-protocol setting? I think it's important to do the studies that prove that it's valuable. One of the challenges that we have in the HCC field is that, particularly in a field where we haven't had very many therapies that are known to be effective, particularly for patients with intermediate to advanced disease, there's been a tendency to use therapies before there's clear evidence of their benefit. And that has, in some ways, really set the field back because the therapies then can become, in a sense, almost standard therapies without having done the studies that prove that they have benefit. And I think that one of the great contributions, for example, of the Barcelona group to the field has been their insistence on rigorous studies that justify management of patients. But is there an adjuvant serafinib trial open right now? I think that there are trials open of serafinib in conjunction with chemoembolization. They're either open or close to opening of serafinib with chemoembolization. I don't know of any trials of serafinib being used up to pre-transplant at this time. So are there situations where you yourself think it would be reasonable, let's assume a patient does not have a protocol available to them, mm-hmm. to use serafinib as adjuvant therapy off protocol, or do you think it should be not used until the mm-hmm. data is out? 
I think probably the group of patients that it may be easiest to justify the use of serafinib in is the group of patients, because a certain small proportion of the patients in the SHARP trial were Charles class B patients. And I think that it's probably a reasonable presumption that Charles class B patients will also benefit from serafinib, since they tend to have a longer life expectancy in general than Charles class C patients. I think that you could make a reasonable case for many patients who have, for example, intermediate stage disease that you treat with chemoembolization. You could probably make a reasonable case for putting those patients on sorafenib as well in the absence of data. But that's where I think the impetus is on us in the oncology community to do the studies to prove that these interventions are really helpful. What about a patient who's had a surgical resection? I think that in that situation... That sort of brings us into the realm of really, in a sense, a secondary chemoprevention. So you have, for example, a patient with cirrhosis who has a surgical resection. That patient, you know, even if the surgical resection is complete with wide margins, because they have a cirrhotic liver and the fact that they developed one cancer tells us that they are at risk of developing recurrent cancers. In fact, their risk of recurrence is about 50% at three years, perhaps as high as 75% at five years after surgical resection. Recurrence or new primary? Well, it's both. So that early recurrences are typically presumed to be from the original tumor, and then late recurrences typically are from a new primary. What fraction of patients who die with HCC have disease still just in the liver as opposed to metastatic disease? I'm not sure what the exact number is, but I think that most patients who die with HCC die of the liver disease, die of HCC involvement in the liver. So, But do they have Mets or not? They may. But that's but not the, the cause the, of but death. But the Mets are not the cause of death. Right. And so there's a reasonable case to be made for treating patients with substantial bulk of disease in the liver with local regional therapies, even if there's evidence of, for example, small nodules in the lungs or in vertebrae, you know, vertebral metastases. Have you yourself used serafinib for HCC, either in a trial or non-trial setting? Mm -hmm. Yes, particularly since the results of the SHARP trial have become available, most insurance providers are covering the use of serafinib for HCC, and we have. I think it's too early really to tell in the general use setting whether we see the same sorts of results that were seen in the SHARP trial. I think we have to presume that we definitely will see an increase in survival. I think the challenge that we see, and not only with serafinib, but in trials of other receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors, is that fatigue is a major issue. And that's important because in HCC, patients with liver disease often have fatigue from their liver disease. And so this is an additional morbidity and in some cases really limits your ability to use serafinib and other receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We've actually had patients for whom we've demonstrated responses with resotyrosine kinase inhibitors, but who have had to come off the drug because of severe disabling fatigue. 